Hi, my name is G.V. Freeman, and welcome to Psychedelic IQ, a podcast devoted to offering grounded and practical wisdom for psychedelic practitioners. At Psychedelic IQ, we try and weave our way between the secular and the sacred, and we've set our primary intentions on improving positive outcomes, increasing safety, and building healthy community within the psychedelic landscape. If you enjoy the show, please remember to give us a positive review, and always remember, the path is wiser than the traveler. Today, it's a great pleasure for me to introduce you to Mac Stein, and Mac is probably one of my oldest teachers and psychedelic mentors. Mac has been an ayahuasquero operating out of South America for 20 plus years and has experience in, in a truly deep lineage that I have learned so much from. I think that this podcast is interesting in a couple of different ways. Not only is there really great content, but Mac shares maybe a contrarian perspective in a couple of ways about the psychedelic landscape as we're seeing it evolve today. Because he has operated in as a Westerner, but in a deep lineage in Peru for so many years, all of the teachings that he brings to his medicine really come from a different perspective than what we're seeing in the world today, uh, the commercialization, the medicalization of psychedelics. So I think that there are some perspectives that you might hear today that might, might push a button or two, might make you think about something in a different way. We talk about prerequisites to service. We talk about who should not be a guide. We discuss the importance of elders and a lineage. And one of my favorite conversations that we have is the four traps of facilitators. So Mac is an anthropologist, a culture advisor, and Curandero, who has been serving ayahuasca for the better part of two decades, studying within a deep Peruvian lineage. Mac sits with thousands of people a year and brings an incredibly grounded approach to his work. Uh, with deep knowledge in culture, the human body, mind, and soul, Mac is truly a master of his craft. So without further ado, I want to introduce you to Mac Stein. Max Stein, welcome to the Psychedelic IQ Podcast. Hello, GV. Thank you so much for having me. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing pretty well. Thank you for asking. Yes, the birds are singing, the sun is shining, and in a world where there are problems, um, just about everything, the, the bulk of, of pretty much everything that is happening every, everywhere in the world right now is positive. And I always keep my attention focused on all of those positive things to remind myself of how small uh, the negative things are in comparison and what a miracle just our physical life is with all of these living things around us, these living systems and the, the resilience uh, and, and the interplay Resilience of life and the interplay of living systems as well as non-living systems mm. and, uh, and the great mystery, which we are immersed in, in every moment. And uh, yesterday I was listening to the sounds of the birds calling back and forth and having a conversation. And I thought, wow, the, it's just such a, such a remarkable experience to be alive. So a lot, a lot of gratitude and I appreciate you asking the question. I'm glad I have a good answer for you. I'm glad I can answer you in the affirmative that I am indeed well. 
wonderful. I just based on that, we could go in so many different directions. And I think I'm going to, the word that I wrote down was discernment. Uh, But before we go down that path, uh, I'm wondering if you can just tell our listeners, um, what kind of life do you live? And maybe a little bit about your origin story in your own words. Well, yes. Um, I spend a lot of time in the Andes. It's a landscape that I have come to really dearly love. And there's um, something about the majesty of nature and, and the world that we get to behold as living creatures. And as, as human beings, we get to bear witness to, to, to life, to our own life, our own process, certainly. And as, uh, so that, that is a great pleasure for me. And of course, having meaningful relationships creates such richness. The other thing is uh, my origin story. I will say just very simply that I uh, grew up as a sort of a, a nameless kid from nowhere, a, a sort of unimportant place. I, I was not a particularly uh, important person and uh, nor were the circumstances that I grew up in very sort of normal. But um, I, I've, I've had a curiosity. I've had a very long curiosity of the, over the course of my life, which uh, bore beautiful fruit when I think at a certain age, we, we start to become seduced by some of the, um, you know, the forbidden fruits of life, you know, sex and drugs and uh, you know, the, the rock and roll lifestyle and, and going down the rabbit hole of, uh, scary movies and violent movies and, um, and story and, and that the, the human being, I think this is something that young people deal with universally. Every generation of young people, they're, they're struggling against their, their reality because we have some sort of intrinsic knowledge and maybe we can't put a name on it, but we have this intrinsic knowledge that there's something else. And usually it manifests in some sort of a rebellion. And maybe we rebel against religion or we rebel against school or our parents. And, um, you know, my own upbringing was really pretty mild. Frankly, there wasn't much I could rebel against. My parents were pretty level-headed, well-adjusted people who were very present for me. But nonetheless, I felt that... Uh, that malaise that uh, crept in in different ways and and all of the influences of uh, the modern world and its distractions. And and I think as children, you know, the origin story goes, you know, we're all children who grow up fascinated with our little little corner of the world and looking at little pine cones or uh, certain plants that grow up in certain seasons or the behavior of animals or birds or something. We find it very interesting. And very quickly, our parents, wherever we grow up, our parents push us along to um, into adult things. They say, well, you've got to go to school and, and you've got to go to church and, and you've got to wear certain clothing uh, on certain uh, festive occasions and you've got to be this way and you've got to be that way. And, and while some of that, of course, uh, has merit, a, a lot of it is very arbitrary as well from one culture to another. And uh, and at a certain point, we, be, we begin to question it. And then that's when we, we explore uh, the forbidden fruits. That's when we, we, you know, we, we start sneaking about with our friends and getting into mischief 
and whether it's you know drugs or alcohol or you know pushing the boundaries of of uh, propriety or getting into dangerous risk taking behavior whatever that is uh, there's a cost that is associated with that and of course that's why we warn young people about those things and um, so I I did you know not, nothing too extreme but I did enough of those things that I I started to build up a certain accumulation of negativity and whether it was physical contamination, you know, you're going to go eat here and you're going to eat there and drink this and eat that. And you're going to live like this. And you're going to watch these programs and listen to this music and watch these movies and read these books and, and, and engage with certain behaviors with your friends. You get to a certain point where maybe it, it hits you when you're 14, or maybe it hits you when you're, you know, 104 years old. But at some point we say, Oh, what, how have I gotten here? And that is the place that I found myself when I originally uh, encountered plant medicine through a family member of mine, uh, also uh, doing some of their spiritual seeking in Peru, and had a very transformative experience. I had read about, of course, in the anthropological literature, and I am an anthropologist. I had read about these sorts of things and even seen videos. I can recall in one of my university classes uh, with a remarkable professor, we, we watched a video of some Yanomamo who were working with the, the Yopo medicine. And, uh, you know, you can imagine this lecture hall of uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, anthropology undergraduate students watching these these guys, you know, that with a bowl cut, you know, they all sort of look like the the Beatles, you know, if the Beatles decided to really get a really nice tan, get really bronzed up and, um, you know, wear nothing but a loincloth and, and, and blow psychedelic snuff up each other's noses, that, that's sort of what, it, what the scene was. And, and but they had these long trails of mucus dripping from their noses. And we said, my God, why don't they wipe their noses after they do this strange hallucinogenic drug? And the response was that, that, that it had something to do with the ritualistic aspect, like you just let it be. And that's and I thought, wow, that's that's weird. But of course, this is what an anthropologist learns is that much of culture is arbitrary and, and we decide to wipe our nose or not wipe our nose based on factors which which may no longer be relevant in the moment or may not be understood by someone from another culture. And so at any rate, I, I knew that these things had, had existed, uh, including ayahuasca. I had read uh, Ginsburg and... Uh, Burroughs, their correspondence back and forth. Excuse me. And uh, I th thought it was very fascinating. And it was a more modern uh, something that I had read in about uh, early 2000s, which prompted me to to reach out to that cousin. And that cousin said, well, I've, I've been in down, down in Peru doing this work. And uh, and it was very interesting. And uh, for whatever reason, I just I felt called to do that. I didn't realize that at that point, I was actually at the, the nadir of my life. And I don't mean Ralph, I mean the low point. And uh, I uh, was living my life in such a way that I was not, I was not present to my life. I was very checked out in a lot of different ways. My, my behavior, my lifestyle, my approach, 
And it was very much a result of the, the cynicism and the, the disequilibrium that um, – imbalance, I think, is the word in English. I, I'm thinking from Spanish, el desequilibrio. But the imbalance in my life was um, really manifesting in a lot of ways when I first went to Peru and had very transformative experiences – which had a lot to do with uh, cleansing, it had a lot to do with cleaning out my body of those residues and of those thought patterns and of all those things which were not my own. Mm. And, and I think that that's the, a very important thing that anyone who is engaging in any spiritual practice uh, and, and sitting with these master plants is a spiritual discipline. It requires discipline. It requires sacrifice and focus and commitment. Uh, it is not um, a recreational thing. It may be recreational, but it is not recreational. And it, it holds us accountable. And, um, but, but a lot of that is that accountability. I think the same thing would, is you know, in my experience with meditation and other spiritual practices that I have studied over the years, either directly or, or academically, that we distinguish between what's us you know, and what is not us and, and what are the, the corrupting influences around us? Because the thing is, actually, we're not perfect. We are all students of life. We're all here to learn and to grow and to be the best people we can be. But we also have limitations. And so uh, part of that, that process for me was accepting my limitations. And I had such a positive experience, such a a, a, a rebirth to slough off all of those negative thoughts, negative self-talk, judgments about other people, all those things. I thought, wow, this is this is remarkable. And of course, as an anthropologist, you know, we always make a, a point of being a participant observer, you know. But uh, and and, that, and that's all well and good if we're going to go to some ritual and we're going to sit there and listen to the teachings of elders from other cultures and try to see things from the, the point of view of another, open our minds, so to speak, from the constraints of our own cultural lens. But um, in this case, I thought, wow, I'm, I'm really a, a participant in this regard. And I, I'm an observer as well, because what I'm observing is myself. And I think that that's the great promise of these master plants for, for all people is that it gives us an opportunity to observe ourselves. And this has long been regarded by the, the great scholars of the ages, that self-knowledge, the opportunity to, to reflect on oneself, is, is the most important of all studies. And, and then if we, if we neglect that, then other things which we study may not serve us so well or might even lead us astray there there is such a thing where we can be educated beyond our own intelligence and and that we we certainly see that in various avenues um uh, th th that can be a trap as well so it was a very beneficial experience for me and uh that is that is what inspired me to uh work more deeply with my teacher, who is a, uh, a Peruvian person, and, uh, and that lineage of teachers to learn 
primarily about myself, really. That was my own personal motivation. But I really became fascinated by a living culture which had many, many thousands of years, many millennia of wisdom, which uh, apart from the, the modality of using the ingesting these psychoactive plants has a, a tremendous amount of practicality. And what I found was that these are not uh, woo-woo, hippie, new age, out there people who you know walk around like some sort of enlightened guru. Oh, I have arrived. I'm here to tell you everything there is. They don't claim to have any special abilities or aptitudes. Matter of fact, if any of them do, they never talk about them. And they instead are very rooted in values which I values and virtues which I think we would say are universal across all of all cultures. It's just that they have they happen to have been born in a place where the culture has long practiced with these tools that help to uh, cultivate those uh, those values, those virtues and uh, and and so I, I have been uh, very involved ever since and, and an advocate and in support of that work so Tell me, I'm going to dig into a couple of little pieces of this just to give listeners an idea and, and some good context. So can you tell me when you first started working, in this case with ayahuasca, and how long it was between when you started as, to maybe practice as a participant and when you knew or when you were called or when you were asked to begin maybe a course of study? Well, I think it's very, there, there are a number of things I would say. First of all, is there's no, um, there, it's not like graduating from college where you say, well, you did the course and then you, you say, okay, well, I'm going to apply for a job and you get the job and you go there and you just start performing, you know, gallbladder surgery on day one at the ER. It, do, it doesn't work that way. It is a, a process which is focused around one's own journey of self-development. And then by virtue of that, within the lineage in which one practices, there are opportunities to say, hey, would you be able to help out with this person? Could you give some counseling to this person? And it was my, in my case, I had a background which allowed me to be a very good support uh, early on. First of all, I had a base in a number of different languages which were relevant to the work. And, and I think that that's a, that's a very important point. This is a very big impediment for people who want to get involved in these things, first of all, is is what is the medium of communication, right? And people will say, oh, well, I went down to, you know, such and such a place and this person told me this and that. And, and I'll say, well, in what language were, did that communication take place? And, and how clearly was that understood? Was someone using Google Translate or, you know, uh, an interpreter or whatever? It, it, so I, I had the 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 great blessing of having already had a, a, back, a foundation in a number of different languages, which allowed me to kind of serve as an interpreter between uh, different cultures. Also, 
the training as an anthropologist to be able to translate between cultural lenses. And that is a, a thing where, you know, there, for goodness sakes, the things that people deal with, let's say in France, South Africa, Taiwan, people are dealing with their particular cultural story and narrative and they're in a box, right? We're, we're trapped in a box in our head, which is partly cultural. And forgive me for never shutting up about culture, but this is what anthropologists study, you know, and, and good anthropologists will tell you there's no such thing as race. Race is artificially made up. We should just drop that entirely. But culture is really the thing to take a look at because it's a bit of a self-imposed mental trap that, of, of, that determines what we think is real. So to be able to navigate between those realities, quote unquote, uh, a point of view, you could call it a societal point of view. Let's see. The other thing, too, is I had a background in counseling and I had done some counseling when I was a student. We um, were I, at, at a point I had been selected when I was uh, still in secondary school to uh, be part of this group of uh peer counselors. And that was something which gave me a vocabulary and a, a, a simple toolkit to be a decent listener. And uh, so I think those things all combined together gave me, um, uh, oh, and of course, the musical background. I have, have enjoyed music for my whole life and play a number of different instruments, which I play for my enjoyment, and sing songs. And so the music, of course, is essential, uh, whether it is in the traditional context with these things or if our, uh, you know, with all due respect, Johnny come lately, the the um, so-called modern scientific establishment has quote unquote discovered that music is extremely important with these things. And of course, anyone who, who, you know, can take a step back from that can sort of chuckle at that and say, okay, how many millions of dollars did you spend to figure that part out? Because I, I think I could have saved you a little bit of money here, but, um, <laughs> but at any rate, everyone needs to figure things out uh, in their own way. And, that, and that's a cultural lens, too. And, and so we need to understand things uh, from our own point of view to, to really understand them. So I, I don't mean to, to, to lampoon those people any more than I would already lampoon myself, because, of course, we, we're all rather ridiculous as human beings. We're somewhat irrational creatures. We need to bear that in mind. And if, if we don't, I think we're, we're missing something very important. But um, that was also part of my skill set, which allowed me to observe the importance of music within the ritual context, because what we're talking about is a ritual. And these rituals are not limited to just with psychedelic plants or any one culture. These, these are universal uh, aspects of ritual. There is no religion in the world that does not derive from a mystical culture, a mystical experience in which dance and chanting and praying and singing and the setting of intentions is not central. And so with all of these uh, skill sets that I came in with, I think coupled with a curiosity and also a great appreciation, a great appreciation for the positive benefits that this work brought 
to my own inner being, I accepted these rather humble invitations to, hey, can you give this person a hand when they're walking outside to use the latrine? Would you, you know, uh, run out there with a headlamp and, you know, and catch that person who thinks that they're going to get on a bus and go back to Cusco, you know, to go see their mother, you know, th- these sorts of things which can happen. And, um, and, and, you know, of course, in Peru, this is a national treasure. So no one worries about, well, you know, we need to keep this private and we need to keep this discreet. Some people are advertising very uh, openly, uh, very um, indiscriminately, we might say. But it, do- it doesn't matter because this is a, it's a cultural treasure in, in, many, uh, in many countries here in South America. And, so, and, and that is for for positive and for negative, and we don't need to get into the, the negative aspects of it, but the positive aspects is that it's a, a, a very welcoming environment where people can just show up and say, hey, I don't have any invitation and I don't know anyone, but I heard about this thing and I, I would like to, to get involved. So at any rate, <clears throat> that led to me being present for more and more of these uh, ceremonies in, the, in, a, in a supportive context. And my teacher made a point that the most important qualification for someone who is involved in this work is empathy. And while none of us are perfected beings, we all have the ability to empathize with others especially when it pertains to our own experience. And this is where it gets a little bit into the archetypal aspect of this sort of work, where let's say, um, let's say someone comes to a, a ceremony with plant medicine and they are, they are suffering from a heartbreak uh, or a divorce or struggle with that. And well, let's say the facilitator has never had a heartbreak or never gone through that. Well, really, actually, that's they're not going to be be the best support. It's it's someone who is a a very um, someone who has lived their life and has a, a, a lived experience who's going to have more compassion, uh, more empathy, more ability to empathize because they've been through that process themselves. Obviously, they're young people who are born who have a great capacity for empathy. Uh, we all have some capacity, but even for us, maybe who aren't so gifted in the area of empathy, the more we live, the more we gain that capacity, and the more we are qualified to to have empathy for others, to be supportive, because that's really the point here, is that the people who are working in the context of the ceremony need to bring a lot of empathy to the equation. If they do not have empathy, then they are actually not nearly as qualified as they might think they are. And uh, and and I speak with the authority of one who is uh, sharing the teaching of someone who comes from a lineage of many thousands of years. And so, you know, uh, God bless the scientific establishment, but let's remember that 150 years ago, they were still talking about phrenology and the humors of the body. And if somebody had, uh, you know, some sort of a, a virus, they'd say, well, let's put some leeches on them and, you know, try to do this and that. And whereas these traditions with these plant medicines have stayed the same 
for many millennia. And this is a um, a living tradition. It's a dynamic tradition, but it's very firmly established rather than some um, uh, something something new. Um, and uh, you know, I would say the same thing about you know psychotherapy. There was a point in my life when I, I thought that I would probably grow up to be a, 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 a psychiatrist or something like that. I was curious about those sorts of things. And of course, we can look at the science of, of psychiatry and say, "Wow, how much it has changed since Alfred Adler and Sigmund Freud and, and people like that." And um, so anyway, point point being that because I was able to um, I was able to be supportive uh, with some, some degree of empathy for the people that uh, that were coming to participate in these works. I certainly was not leading the works at that point. I was just an assistant uh, out of my own curiosity and enthusiasm and, and support for it. I thought, well, this is a very positive thing. And 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 what what better to involve ourselves in in life than something positive my teacher recognized that in me and it was not explicitly stated but i understood later through some my teacher's a very taciturn person but it became clear to me later on in in years that, that that's what was noted in me and so I continued in my support role for quite some time, and I was a helper. And I did that because I, I frankly just went to these things periodically for my own benefit, uh, to do my own work. And then I would also lend a hand because I, I believed in it and I, I supported it. And I thought, this is, this is good. And uh, there's something I think very natural for us as human beings where we, we feel good when, when we're needed. And when we are, uh, our value is affirmed by community and we help out and people say, thank you so much. You know, if it's, you know, the, the, the guy running the bike shop or the, the bar, the barbecue grill or the, you know, oh, hey, thanks for picking up the trash or whatever it is. You know, it's, we, we, that's a universal human thing. I think that's a universal human need. So I certainly felt appreciated. And at a point after doing that for many years, uh, someone, or actually a, a number of people started to ask me, they said, well, well, do you think you would be willing to lead this work yourself? I had no um, preconceived ideas that I would ever lead, lead this work. I have other work that I do. I am an author. I, I, I do many other things, many other things. There are many other ways that I can spend my time. And frankly, it wasn't my plan. And I had another agenda and another, uh, yeah, another plan for my life. This was not my plan. But so many people were asking me if I might do this that I felt that I needed to go have a conversation with my teacher and spoke very directly and said, do you think that I should do this or should I? not do this? Should I just walk away from it and just live my life and come and drop in periodically within the context of this, you know, very established traditional lineage? And my teacher said that they had faith in my ability to do a good job. 
And that struck me as sort of odd. But since that trust, which I had placed in them, was reciprocated, I decided that I would accept it. And that's how I got into this role. But of of course, just because someone gets into this role doesn't mean that they're any good at it. So it's been a very long journey for me, having accepted the first invitation and the second and the third to go from here to there, uh, sharing this work. I I have continued to do my own self-reflection, my own self-development, and and I've learned a lot along the way. Uh, I've learned a lot about these particular plants, these these modalities, the culture, the language, the history, the tradition, and also about people. And that really... uh, all of the the rhetoric aside, all of the the cultural lenses aside, really, what we're talking about is human beings uh, who who are born as little children, and at some point in their life, for whatever reason, whether it's curiosity or whether it's illness or whether it's just a you know popular fad. They're called to have one of these experiences with these uh, very powerful plant modalities, and they find themselves there. Uh, but of course, really, you know, for us as helpers or guides, facilitators, we we are human beings who are helping our fellow human beings. And so really what, what it is, we're learning quite a lot about, about the, human, the human experience, the human struggle. Again, and it comes back to, to empathy. When we can empathize, then we are well-suited to help people to navigate their experiences. There's a, a number of things in there that I uh, am very interested in. And I just, I think what I heard is you showed up to work on yourself. And yes. in that process, you started sort of as a participant, then you dropped into a role more of an assistant or a, a helper in these ceremonies. And at some point in time, somebody came to you and said, huh, like you might have something. Uh, th- there's some reason that I want to spend more time with you. There's some reason that something that you have that, that I might want. So they started, they actually asked you, there was there was interest in you helping them versus the other way around. Um, Correct. And I'm wondering, we, we hear a lot about the idea of a wounded healer in this world. And I'm wondering how you relate to that term and uh, maybe how it is used today. Yes, Yes, I, I do think that there is such a thing as archetypes. And in this life, there, there are archetypes. I know people who we would say, well, they're a king archetype or they're a queen, right? Uh, or someone has a warrior archetype. And I believe that people who take up a path of service often are warrior archetypes. And then there is the, the magician archetype. And, and, the, the, and, and, 
there's something very uh, old and universal about those things. And, and I won't get into all of that, but <clears throat> just to divine, define the term a little bit. But but yes, I think in the healing modalities, we, we, we certainly see this to an extent with the medical profession that physicians and nurses who have an interest in a particular body system or particular illness, they become experts. They, they study that illness and they, they learn. And of course, that's the, the modern and postmodern approach where people learn academically rather than experientially. But for the majority of human history, we have had a, a, a different approach to well, really, frankly, it's the same. I mean, there's there's a concept that we would call native science. That there are science is not limited to uh, modern technological science. Science, really, we're talking about observation. And so, uh, just as a, a doctor will say, "Well, we're going to prescribe you this medication. We don't know why it works, but it seems to work for this condition." For the same reason, a a traditional a traditional doctor. I think they absolutely tradition these these folk healers or you know other pejorative terms might be used uh, whether they're called a shaman or a witch doctor or a curandero or whatever they're using the same tools of observation to say okay well when there is a certain type of infection we begin with this plant we begin with uña de gato and then if there is a need for cleansing perhaps piñón blanco or perhaps oje or some other remedy sangre de grado these different remedies are going to be applicable because there is a, a body of a statistical data and it might not be written on a piece of paper it's not in a peer-reviewed journal but it actually has thousands of years of peer-reviewed science. It just hasn't been written down. And because uh, modern academic con uh, um, uh, context hasn't seen it through their own lens, they haven't done the research yet. Well, they're going to dismiss it because, they, again, they have to do it their own way. So, so yes, but back to the point of the, the, the wounded healer here is that the plant medicine tradition in South America is not limited to psychoactive plants. Psychoactive plants play a very important role in the diagnostic process. But there is a huge pharmacopoeia there that includes antiparasitics and purgatives and, and many other plants that affect uh, organ systems to optimize health. And that is where the various plant diets come in. And so traditionally, people who uh, have uh, a, a particular uh, struggle or an illness, well, they get very good with this um, anecdotal kind of knowledge to say, well, uh, for example, I have a lot of anecdotal knowledge about parasitic infections, gut parasites, because I had my own experience with those. And so sometimes when people will ask me, they'll say, hey, well, you know, what about cancer? I'll say, I haven't had cancer, so I can, I, I'll refer you to someone else. But if someone talks about parasites, I can say, well, you could try, you know, the mimosa pudica, or you can try the um, doing some uh, juiced uh, cannabis leaf, not smoking cannabis, but taking the leaves and juicing it and taking that for a period of time uh, and so on and so forth, diatomaceous earth, all these little hacks. And so the wounded healer, what they do is, and, and frankly, this, this is universal, right? Uh, grandma, why does grandma know to put 
vinegar on a bee sting because her grandmother put vinegar on her bee sting. And so she knows that it works. And she doesn't need to go to the doctor or WebMD or anything like that. She just knows. And so in that regard, we, we all have varying degrees of this kind of knowledge. And, and with, uh, when it relates, as it pertains to plant medicine, psychoactive plant medicine, we can say, well, okay, I had an experience with a particular plant medicine that was very healing for me. And, and therefore, I am qualified to some extent to speak about the benefits of it. I would not be qualified to speak about the benefits of things that I have not directly experienced. <laughs> but again, it, it's back to the empathy piece, which I spoke about before, because really, you know, we could say, oh, well, if someone's healing from a broken heart, well, how do you help them? Well, if you know what it's like, if you've had a broken heart and you've had to heal your heart and recover from that, then you're able to offer practical advice in the terms of words, but then also perhaps some prescription and to say things like, you know, once you get some exercise, you know, stop watching TV and stop watching sad movies and, you know, sitting there eating bonbons and, you know, drinking whiskey on the couch. I'm going to prescribe that you get out there and start jogging and hitting the gym and doing some yoga. That's going to help you heal your broken heart better. Uh, so so it, it is a multifaceted thing. Um but really, it re it's about relatability. Can we relate to the person's experience both on a physical level in terms of giving practical advice, but also on the level of empathy to be emotionally supportive to people who are uh, going through those sorts of things? Of course, we've all heard stories of doctors with terrible bedside manners. You know, they come in and say, well, you're, you're, sorry, you, you got cancer. Uh, you got a couple of years to live. I don't know what to tell you. We'll try some chemotherapy. You say, eh, that's a terrible doctor. You know, you don't, you don't want to get that doctor. You, you want someone to say, well, you know, it could be this, it could be that, and we're going to do our best and, you know, <laughs> that, that sort of a thing. Uh, but optimally you have a doctor who says, Hey, I had the same cancer myself and I beat it. And I'll tell you how we beat it. I beat it this, this, this. And I had 10 patients who had the same one and we're going to beat it. That's when you say, hey, that's a placebo effect alone is going to cure that cancer. <laughs> Tell me, there's, there are schools being created. There are training programs being created primarily in the United States right now where individuals have not had nearly the kind of stair-stepped experience that you have from participant to assist, assistant, maybe to apprentice, to, to serving ayahuasca, to, um, to serving larger groups. And it's sort of going in the, maybe the educational route first. <clears throat> and I'm curious if you could maybe share what you believe the true benefit, or maybe at least, maybe not the true benefit, but the benefit of learning through a lineage was for you and maybe compare and contrast that to, you know, a, just a traditional education approach. You mean a modern education, an academic education? hundred percent. Yes. 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 Well, there is no experience like lived experience. And for this reason, doctors do a residency before they practice and, and they learn their limitations and, and they learn what they're, they're good at and what they're not. And they choose a, a specialty after the residency is completed and, and, and they are observed 
during their residency. And, and if they're making big mistakes and perhaps somebody's going to say, hey, you, you got to get out of here. And so in the case of, of plant medicine, there is also a um, th- there is a tradition in that regard as well, where one only steps forward along the way with the blessings of their teacher. And that is within the context of community, that is the authority. And so really what I'm saying here is that there is an authority that creates somewhat of a limiting valve to say, we really want to select people who have the right profile that are in line with our cultural values, our ethics, and our vision of the way to do these things so that so that there is no harm done because there's no reason for a neophyte psychonaut who wants to experiment with these things to do harm to others there's no there's no reason for that to ever happen and i believe that everybody has the 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 right to experiment with their own brain however they want i think everyone in this world has the right adults not children i don't think children should be playing around with these things uh, unsupervised it's not appropriate and and most children don't need to have anything to do with these things, even with supervision. This is for mature adults. And a matter of fact, I think even people in their early 20s, often they're in a stage of life where they should be enjoying their life. They should be going to parties and having fun and being a little bit carefree for a while. Because actually, when we're working with these kind of plant medicines, there's a, a sort of accountability that says, well, you know, you, you maybe shouldn't do some of those silly things anymore. And, and life, I think there are natural stages to life, not to get too tangential here, but the the reason that there is a tradition is because it there have been observations made over many thousands of years to discern what the benefits are from this work and to make sure that it's not doing harm. Because again, what we're talking about is part of the traditional pharmacy of cultures who lived in an environment where these plants were commonplace. And so it is no different from, let's say, uh, a child growing up in Europe where the parent says, that's poison sumac. Don't touch that plant. You will get a rash. Or this is an apple, it's good to eat. This is an apple that is not in season. And so um, the, the difference, of course, coming from the, um, the academic uh, postmodern mindset is that that educational paradigm does not give the 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 student the body of knowledge which they will need to work with these plants in an effective way when compared with what they could learn within a tradition that has many thousands of years of experience and the other thing is that the the postmodern academic culture does not select for empathy Empathy is not something which is a uh, a prerequisite for getting a degree. If someone completes their assignments, if they are able to regurgitate 
certain rubrics or certain information, I know because I have a, uh, <laughs> I have a number of degrees. And so um, I got those degrees within the postmodern educational context by by regurgitating what I was told to regurgitate. At no point did someone say, well, I think you'll be a good anthropologist and we're going to give you your degree. I have a degree in physics as well. But at, at no point did anyone say, you're going to be a good anthropologist because you care about people. That, that was never part of the conversation. It was, okay, well, you did this class and you got an A and you did this class and you got an A and you did this. And you, okay, well, you took your, whatever, 140 credits and you got there, here's this. Okay, and now, now you're going to, yeah, you know, take your GRE and then you move on to the next thing. It's it's um, it's rooted again. It's it's the postmodern academic uh, reality is rooted in a cultural context. It's very difficult for us to see that when we are born, raised, and conditioned within it. And if we speak out against it or we criticize it. We we might be we might earn the respect of some, but we're not going to get a degree. And, and unfortunately, the other issue with academia, of course, is that there is a business component to academia. Whereas the and I don't want to get too you know critical of the system because you know the modern academic system has taught us many great positive things. But let's just be honest: there is a financial motivation. And many students go to the university uh, merely because their parents pay the money and they go there and they they stumble through it and they get a piece of paper and they come out and they hit the job market. It doesn't mean they've actually learned anything. Whereas in the traditional context, the student does not choose the teacher. The teacher chooses the student. Hmm. The teacher says, I think you will be a good student. As a matter of fact, uh, one of my contemporaries chose a student at a point who's just a remarkable young man. And I've, I've, I've told him over and over again, I said, boy, you, you chose a great student. <laughs> he's, he's one of the best, one of the best in, in terms of his empathy and equanimity. And so I think that that's really the big difference as I see it. Now, uh, to, to just, you know, if, if someone wants to play devil's advocate, what I can say is, uh, I don't dismiss the the postmodern scientific viewpoint either. I think that's very interesting too to read things uh, about these types of plants and the experiences that they bring up. But really, what it ends up being is just a confirmation. For example, I mentioned the music component that the Johns Hopkins. They say, well, it turns out that when the journey uh, with the psilocybin is accompanied by music that has sort of a, a crescendo and a very is a sort of a positive, uh, uplifting quality to it. About a, you know two thirds of the way in, uh, it, the results are better. It's like well, okay, you know, but but they didn't need to do that study to do that. It is only their uh, the limiting beliefs of their culture which prevents them from merely taking the word of people who come from a different cultural mindset, who've been doing this for thousands of years. And so, you know, hey, everybody's getting to where they're getting it in the right way. There is a, an old saying that the um, uh, one culture represents the intuitive side, the elder sibling who already knows, 
And then the other culture represents the, the analytical mind who has to figure everything out and has to break everything down into pieces and parts to understand it another way to then come to that other sibling and say, well, I figured this thing out. And the older sibling will say, good for you. You figured it out in your way. But I, I think, again, the, the, the important thing that I want to come back to in answering your question is this is about safety. And that just because we have academic knowledge uh, does not necessarily equate to safety. Because, for example, as I said before, this is about people. We're talking, you know, this, this podcast is about psychoactive plants and substances. But frankly, what we're really talking about is people and the way in which people either receive a benefit or do not receive a benefit. And so a big part of the responsibility of someone who is facilitating these sorts of events is to know when to tell people, no, this is, this is not working. No, no more for you. Uh, this is not a good fit. We're going to refer you elsewhere. Uh, or even better, to preemptively uh, deny access. Uh, sadly, I must say, these things are not for everyone. Uh, yeah. but, but, but in terms of safety, it, it's just a... Um, it, it's a very important thing that the, the facilitators and the people who share these modalities have a responsibility and that cannot be underscored. And so if we were to say, well, hey, let's, let's do a clinical trial with this thing and we don't know anything about this molecule, but let's do a clinical trial, you know, and let's say one in a thousand people, they're, they're going to suffer very negative lifelong side effects. That's not ethical. It, it, it's you, you, you can't do it that way. You can't do it that way. And so that is the big difference between the, again, the postmodern scientific viewpoint, which is willing to accept a certain amount of collateral damage. And I think somebody could probably um, uh, disagree with me on that. But that's my viewpoint, at least. As, as compared with the traditional context where there's many generations of teachers, teachers who are in their 90s who say, hey, hold on here. Hold on. Let's, don't get ahead of yourself. Uh, and, and that's the great benefit is that um, it, it's not new territory. So for, for, for someone who's, let's say, has a psychotherapy background, for all that they know about the human mind, this is new territory for them. I think it's very important that they recognize that this is a new frontier for the traditional, uh, for the cultures who have worked in this way for many thousands of years, this is not new territory. And their knowledge of people and what is happening with these processes can only be described as myself, to, to my, by myself, a participant observer, an outsider born outside of their culture as uncanny, hmm. an uncanny level of intuition and uh, accumulated acumen, like a sailor who can listen to the, uh, the Coast Guard weather report and say, mm -hmm. yeah, they say that it's going to be a nice day, but actually, I don't think so. And they turn out to be right. I'm curious, as I have found a Peruvian teacher myself that I've been studying with for a while now. And I have found that he is 
most inclined to offer the maybe the deepest of teachings while we are in the medicine. Like there are there are just certain things that he's willing to share during ceremony um, where he would not share those things uh, outside if it was just he and I having a conversation. Would that is that somewhat your experience as well? Absolutely, absolutely. Because there's an interplay, really. What we're talking about is uh, the intelligence of living systems. And uh, of course, this great mystery of consciousness as it expresses itself through, frankly, all of creation, as far as I can tell. And, um, and that when we participate in these sorts of ceremonies, we are focusing our attention on something larger than our own narrative or our own conditioning, etc. And, uh, and there's also a certain accountability there. There, there is, as I said before, when we engage in this level of self-reflection, there is, there's no room for, uh, certain frivolities or, uh, or being disingenuous. And so in that space of heightened sensitivity, of uh, heightened sense of uh, group identity, and with a really uh, amplified sense of who each authentic individual being in the space is, we can more authentically share our own gifts. And some people share teachings in that way. Other people share teachings in, in the way that they embody certain things, or they may share a song or they may be um, a very dedicated assistants and they make sure that, you know, the mosquitoes aren't coming in the door and making sure everyone has a, a, enough water to drink and helping people walk to the, etc. cetera. Um, in that amplified space, there's there's greater sensitivity, and uh, so I think it, yes, of course it makes sense. But but that is not limited. Again, I speak as an anthropologist here. That is not limited to the plant medicine ceremony. The same would be said uh, of let's say a Christian sermon. That certain uh, truths, as expressed from the uh, the tradition carry a greater power. Uh, they are more elegantly conveyed in the ritual context. They, when we're talking about lofty concepts, if we talk about them in a bar room, a crowded bar room full of irreverent people, it is more easy to to denigrate them. Whereas if we create an environment which is supportive of these higher concepts. And this is what academia does. Academia says we're going to build this building and we're going to dedicate it to study. And that's what we're going to do here. And if it's bullshit, really, it should be cast out. Excuse me. I know we can swear on this podcast, but I'm, I'm trying not to. But uh, bullshit's sort of a mild one. But, but, but that's it. And, 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 and this, the ceremony is a place where uh, bullshit doesn't stand. And uh, it, it is a place where we, we get rid of that sort of a thing. And instead, open ourselves up to uh, something that is more meaningful. Yeah, I'm. I'm wondering what 
There, there's a lot of people. So Oregon recently, just very, very recently opened their first psilocybin treatment facility um, that has been licensed and insured. There are th- this movement, the psychedelic renaissance, if we were to call it that, opening up all over the place. And while mushrooms uh, seem to be a, a fairly easy and accessible training uh, path, if we look in the United States at least, ayahuasca, definitely not. You know, I think that we would we would probably agree that most of the training, if we were to call it that, comes through a lineage in a number of South American countries. If somebody was here looking to say, you know what, I had a really, <laughs> I, let's say that somebody came in and and sat uh, with this medicine and said, wow, that was amazing. I got the call. I'm supposed to be uh, a guide. I'm supposed to do this. Uh, what would you say to them? Uh, <laughs> well, I'd tell them to pump the brakes a little bit, first of all, because we we have to be very careful with our motivations as it pertains to our involvement with these things. And I, I'm I, there, there are two things you mentioned here that, that are interesting. I I, I, I want to address them separately. Uh, one is is your direct question, but one I, maybe we'll return to that, which is about the the, the differences between those particular uh, substances as it pertains to ayahuasca. Well, universally, it, as I said, it's very important that we have the support of elders and teachers. And so if we have a revelatory experience in that moment where we think, oh, well, I want to do this, then, and and I'll be perfectly clear with you, I never had that experience. I never thought this is what I want to do. As I I made clear before, I had other plans with my life. And frankly, for that matter, I do a lot of other other things. I, I have many other interests. I have many other income uh, generating programs that I do. I have other work, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this for me, this plant medicine thing, this is a, a spiritual practice and this is an act of service for me. And, uh, first of all, what I'll say is I don't think that it is, um, it is not something that we choose. It's something that chooses us. And the expression of that is our community. When our community asks us to lead in a capacity or help in a capacity, then we have a responsibility to go to our teacher and say, put ourselves at at their mercy and say, do you think, and this is what I did, do you think I should do this? Because then the teacher can say, well, I think you'd be a good fit, but I think it would be good if you develop this, that, and the other thing. And, And then you'll be better equipped. And then I'll be able to invest my trust in you. And um, because they actually have the knowledge which we will rely on over the course of our entire lives. We'll, we'll, well, as long as they live, my, my teacher's teacher has already departed, for example. But I, I spent some time with that particular person and asked many questions. And it was a remarkable experience to sit with someone in their 90s and hear many pieces of wisdom that can be found in no book. They cannot be found in any, any internet source. And, and these anecdotes 
as transmitted to me, are not only uh, a, a sort of a general wisdom, but they're also a specific wisdom to this particular tradition because they're different ways of working. It's important to recognize that different cultures work with these plants in different ways, whether it's in Brazil or Ecuador or Peru, and then all of the sub variations of the different tribes and ethnicities and groups and regions that all have their ways of working. But it's very important that when we're doing this work that we go very deep and and rather than uh, succumb to the sort of the, the dilettantism of a little bit of this or a little bit of that, we instead go very deep with one particular tradition so that we're building up this bigger body of knowledge. But again, as a, as a young student or as a facilitator just starting out, there are a lot of questions and things will arise and we might not know. We might not know what is happening. And so we need to be able to reach out to our elders and ask them very specifically, say, well, this thing happened. So for people who don't have that, I think they, they, they do disservice to the culture in general. They do, do disservice to the movement in general. And when people approach me and they say, well, I feel inspired that I should do this. I say, great, come to Peru, spend some time here. Spend some time d working on yourself, developing yourself, investigating yourself. Because often when they feel that they want to be the guide, really what it is, is they want to be the guide for themselves. <laughs> and and that, that is not, I'm not talking about other people. I'm talking about my, I'm talking about me. I'm talking about everybody because we all, um, we are all, we're all learning to trust ourselves we're all learning to love and accept ourselves. And very often we need to start by trusting another. And so we need to work with someone who is worthy of our trust. And because there are going to be maybe scary or difficult moments which arise. And someone who is, it was a neophyte to these uh, practices who has no experience, they're not qualified to, to guide us when we are in a moment of fear or difficulty because they have not navigated those things themselves. Uh, and, and so again, that is the importance for someone who feels the calling, if they feel inspired to be involved, usually what I tell them is, okay, well, if you wanna be involved, listen, there's going to be one per, in a room of somewhere between you know two people and maybe a hundred people, because I have been in, in ceremonies of over a hundred people in South America, um, in, in massive, massive temples where people from all around the community gather and, you know, the local doctor and the local police chief and everybody, they come because they come to pray, you know, whether they are Catholic or evangelical or uh, Jewish people, people from other countries, uh, they come and they pray and they want to do their, their self-reflection within the context of this inclusive spiritual practice. And, um, whether it is a small group or whether it is a big group, uh, sometimes difficulties can arise. And so it's very important that whoever is leading these, uh, these works is qualified. Because again, we want to keep it safe. Do no harm. Whether, whether someone is a, a physician or psychiatrist or whether they are um, the kuraka of a tribe, uh, within the jungle, 
and it is their responsibility to care for the tribe and, and, and help with the hunt, etc. cetera. Uh, it, it's their responsibility to take care of the people. And so that is why uh, I would tell anyone who is um, uh, excited about this and, and wanting to get involved, I would say, well, you know, work with a teacher, work with the teacher. And if that teacher says, hey, do this, do that, listen to that teacher. And matter of fact, there was a point where uh, something came up within uh, my work in, in South America where um, someone was interested in, um, how would I say this? Um, well, they were curious about sort of an experimental sort of a thing. And I thought, okay, well, that, that's, that's interesting. Yeah, maybe we give that a try. And so we tried it. And then when I shared with my teacher, she said, don't do that anymore. Nope, you're not going to do that. We, she said, and I remember very clearly, she said, Yo si sé que hay, hay de todo. I know that there's all kinds out there, is what she said. She said, um, there's all kinds. But in this tradition, that's not what we do. And in time, as I have continued to mature and I have continued to reflect on that, I see the wisdom. But as a younger person, I did not yet see the wisdom in that. And so I, we did the experiment and it was sort of okay. But I see in retrospect that my teacher was correct, that there is a wisdom and a logic to doing these things in a way that makes best use of thousands of years of experience. Yeah. One of my teachers, I think that one of the, the most simple pieces of advice that I have been given was leave no residue. Well said. And to not, uh, not only um, any residue from the experience itself, but also like leave no residue from me, leave no residue from other participants and to keep things as clean and as safe as we possibly can. So people can show up, they can have their own experience, they can commune with the medicine, and they know that whatever happened was really between them and that medicine. And that Correct. I really had nothing to do with it. Correct. Correct. If, if someone was looking for a teacher. So let's go one, just one more step further down this path. They, they've realized that, you know, this is, something that they would like to invest more in. What do you think the qualities of a good teacher would be? Well, I would ask them first and foremost, why they're not working with the teacher who served them that those particular plants. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and then we can do a bit of a case study. Mm -hmm. I do think that there's something to be said for the law of attraction. Anybody, it's easy to criticize every single person, any and each and any of us. Uh, and, and I'm, I'm not, um, I'm no stranger to criticism. Certainly there are plenty of people who think that I, I'm not the, the person they would like to work with. And I, and I would support them in that, uh, that discernment. We should gravitate to a teacher because there's something about what they do that we want to incorporate into what we're doing. This is a general statement about teachers. It doesn't matter what context we're studying anything. It's because they're doing something, and, and, and often it's not even the academic material or the information which is conveyed, because 
you'll find a thousand teachers who all teach in the same subject, but there's one in particular that we want to work with. And the reason is because it, it shows us something within ourselves that we wish to cultivate within our own being, because we're talking about self-development here. And so that, is, that should be the guide. But, but if we have an experience with someone and, and it, it, we say, well, I, I want to work with this, but I don't work with this teacher, there's a great teaching in that as well. And, and that, that has to do with discernment. And, uh, and since no one is perfect, and there are not really any masters of anything. We are all just students. Some of us are more advanced than others. Uh, we can we can reflect on that too and say, well, okay, I'm working with a student who's more advanced than myself, but maybe it's not the person I want to be studying under. Yeah. So then we go find that uh, that person. I was very fortunate in that the first teacher with whom I worked has continued to be my primary teacher when I was sort of thrust into this role, I thought, well, I need to do a, a crash course at this point, and I need to augment my uh, cultural, linguistic, and technical knowledge as much as I possibly can, as quickly as I possibly can, um, so that I can best uh, show up in this capacity. So I went and I, I, I looked, I sought out some of the big names, you know, there's, there's some some big names. I won't say who they are because I don't want to say that one person's a big name and another person's not. But but I had heard some names and I thought, okay, well, I'm going to go and and visit the ceremonies of all of those teachers and see what it is that I can learn uh, both uh, uh, positive, negative. But in the end, I have uh, kept the same primary teacher and continued to support their work and and, and be part of their particular lineage because I think there's something to be said for law of attraction, that we're um, in any event, in any situation, we're either going to have a beneficial experience or a learning experience uh, or potentially some combination of both. And, uh, and I think you know what I mean by a learning experience, because <laughs> I, I've had those experiences, too, where I say, my goodness, how did I get to this peculiar situation where this I don't feel safe in this situation. I, and this is not the right person for me to be working with. And then I say, okay, well, lesson learned. And uh, uh, because again, we, we trust the teacher, but we're learning to trust ourselves. And some would say that we are learning to trust in the higher power. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I, man, the, just in the last six, eight months or so, I have had two very self-defining experiences about safety. And not even in the in a medicine uh, capacity. It was just working with teachers who showed me very clearly that they were not safe for me. They may be safe for other people, but they were not safe hmm. for the work that I needed to do in that moment. And you know, for for me, thank God that I was not on medicine because it would have been even more challenging. Um, and I and I the first one was in India. And that was even that was really challenging because I was stuck in India and I couldn't get out. Fortunately, the, the most recent one, I learned from my experience in India and I said, wow, you know what? I can get out of here. I have the ability to make a decision for myself, for my safety. And I'm just going to change my plane ticket and fly home. And just honoring my safety and my needs was a huge improvement over what I had done 
three or four months prior to that. So huge learning experiences related to the feelings, my internal feelings of safety. There's plenty of peer-reviewed mainstream science that makes it very clear that if a student is feeling unsafe, they cannot learn. Yeah. And that whatever the factors are that are conspiring to create that situation, they need to be addressed. And my advice to anyone who is out there who is seeking these sorts of experiences, I would give them the following suggestions. Don't go to an event that involves these things without a reference. A referral from a friend who says, I have had this experience with this person and I can vouch for them. If it's something that's advertised on the internet and they get five stars on whatever, don't do that. That is not the optimal scenario. It might turn out okay. But the best way is through a trusted confidant, a contact, a friend, and then reserve the right to excuse oneself. If one arrives at an event and and things don't seem right and things seem odd, perfectly acceptable to say, I am so sorry, something's come up for me and I'm going to have to excuse myself. And look elsewhere. because. If we are, we have to trust. Matter of fact, there was uh, someone who was uh, came to one of our events uh, a few years back, and the person uh, had been part of another tradition and had a very elaborate cosmological uh, narrative, which was uh, part of their perspective, and the person. Uh, made some rather peculiar uh, uh, um, accusations very directly towards me, and and I said, well, uh, listen, you know, none of that's really important whether that's true or not. What's important here is if if this doesn't feel right to you, then really you should excuse yourself, and you know, we'll give you a refund, we'll give you your money back, and please. Please go and and you've already found what works for you and you don't need to waste your time here if you don't feel safe. It's very important that everyone feel safe with this sorts of work. Trust your gut. Yes, trust your gut, trust your eyes, trust your nose, your senses, your discernment. Uh, As I said, I had an experience once uh, with someone who I don't believe was uh, acting from a place of integrity in their work. I think their motivations were less than altruistic. And um, that's my own, my own subjective judgment. Uh, however, my discernment, which is always superior to judgment, my discernment made me feel a little uncomfortable just right from the get-go. We arrived at the person's workspace and took a look around, and there were a number of things which just didn't feel right to me. And so as you say, Trust your gut, but yes, trust all of your senses. There, there is inevitably going to be some fear that comes up in 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 the journey itself. It's it's natural to feel some fear and some apprehension whenever we are going to ingest a strong molecule or uh, essence of a plant which is going to provoke certain physiological and psychological and spiritual experiences, 
we should approach that with respect and reverence for the power of those things. But at the same time, um, and, and so it's natural to fear, feel some fear and some trepidation around the experience itself. I want to delineate that from if we are feeling fear about um, the space itself, the set, uh, excuse me, the setting, the setting, or, <clears throat> I, I, and I'll mention that too, the set. If let's say someone is concerned about their ability or, or their readiness to participate. Let's say someone is struggling with a drug crisis, an addictive crisis. They've just had a traumatic experience a week before. They're feeling ungrounded. They haven't slept. They're dealing with some major problem. Well, that's a reason why they, they, it's not safe for them either. But when it pertains to the facilitator, the helpers, the assistants, the center, the retreat center at which, uh, at which the work takes place, you know, are there good railings? You know, you don't want, is there, are there precarious steps leading down to the bathroom? Those are real considerations. It's, it's very important to take those into account. Yeah. Well, I got uh, two maybe hefty questions and we'll do a little speed round as we wrap this up. But one of the Questions that I wanted to ask you, you sit with and have been doing this for what, close to a couple decades now. And you sit with uh, maybe, I don't know how many hundreds of people every year. What are the risks for you as the facilitator um, working with all of these people in these very profound expanded states of consciousness lots of stuff open. What are, what are your risks? Well, I think the main one is that it's very important that anyone in a leadership position or in the role of guide or therapist maintain really healthy boundaries uh, between themselves and participants, not getting caught up in the drama being very careful to not get involved in, let's say, um, uh, relationship quarrels, arguments between other people. Uh, There needs to be a certain professionalism, uh, not taking favorites and uh, discerning very uh, clearly between uh, what, uh, what people's issues are that they're dealing with versus what is true and what is actually happening. And so uh, very often, I I think really the the issue comes up is uh, relationships Uh, that a, a, uh, you know, uh, two partners get into some kind of a quarrel. And that's a really good time for a facilitator or a therapist to to take a step back and hold a loving, respectful, supportive space for both parties, not taking any sides. Meanwhile, the community itself might want to take sides and say, well, you know, know, one person is right and the other person is wrong and blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, as they say, there's always three sides to every story. So it's very important that we we, we remain removed in, in that regard and then also uh, to be aware of the projections which uh, people have. Uh, people will always have projections. I mean, uh, frankly, we, we 
we live in a world where we constantly are labeling and being labeled and projecting and judging. And I don't think that anyone is immune or, or fully removed from those sorts of things. But instead, all we can do as individuals, and this go, this is a universal, we can't take other people's perspective of us too seriously, uh, especially when it's coming from just one individual or a few individuals who, who might want to condemn us or praise us. We would say, well, thank you. But as uh, Don Ruiz would say in the Four Agreements, don't take anything personally. Don't take the criticisms personally. And don't take the compliments personally either, because people have projections and they have their own agendas, conscious and unconscious. And so it's very important to maintain uh, karmic cleanliness. It's really essential that a facilitator or anybody in leadership position stays neutral and doesn't get wrapped up in the, the processes and I think of, of the participants, this can happen with therapists where they have burnout and the therapists are becoming very personally invested in the outcome for their patients. And so with this kind of work, really, we're, we're offering it, the opportunity to participate in a, in a tradition. And so people are participating in the tradition. They're not necessarily receiving something from us. And so it's our responsibility to say, hey, I, I think this is working, this is not working, et cetera, without any attachment to it. If they say that they're getting benefit, continued benefit, they want to continue to return, that's good. So we're gatekeepers in that regard to keep an eye on them. But we should not start to think that that it is dependent upon us and, and, and burn ourselves out when it doesn't work for someone, et cetera. And... Um, and also the important thing is to, to remain free of any kind of projections, the projections that others might have that we are somehow perfected beings because they'll say, oh, wow, this person, wow, I, I admire them so much. But in the end, the facilitator and every human being for that matter, we always have to be honest with ourselves because if we're doing our work, which is requisite for these kind of roles, we need to be doing our work. We know what our growth edge is, our developmental theme, uh, the important issues that are our own, which we're not going to bring into that space and, and talk about in any great detail. Perhaps once in a while, we might speak from the heart about our own journey, if it's relevant. But, um, but that needs to be removed as well. So it's really important that the facilitator or the leader uh, be doing enough of their own work that they're not going to be triggered by or challenged by or thrown off center by anything that is transpiring within the context of the work. And again, that's the reason why someone needs to be properly trained and initiated into the role uh, so they don't have problems. And I will say, for the record, I have seen people crash and burn. I have seen people who have jumped into the leadership role without doing enough of their own work, and it has played out in a way that hasn't reflected well on these traditions. And again, the reason that I'm involved is I think this is a very good tradition. It helps people. It's beneficial. And so it should be held in the best possible way by people who are qualified. Yeah, perfect. 
So what what is the point of all this? Like what are, what are we doing this work for? That is a great question and that is the question that everyone should ask when they uh, decide to have these sorts of experiences. And very simply I, I cannot speak to other modalities, but as far as working with ayahuasca, it is about having an experience which allows us to become introspective in such a way that we can learn how to be more present for life. We, all of us have responsibilities. We may have children or work responsibilities or home responsibilities, career responsibilities, community responsibilities. People might be in leadership roles, administrators, government, etc. We have a responsibility to be present. And being present means being aware of what is just a story that we're telling ourselves uh, versus what is authentically true within ourselves. Not to get too deep into my own spiritual views or ideology or anyone else's for that matter, because I think they all have their place in this wonderful tapestry of humanity, but they can sometimes be an impediment to us being present for the realities of life. And if someone is going to the, the Rabbi David Cooper had a quote I read once, I, it always stuck with me. He said, the value of a mystical experience can always be assessed in terms of one's ability to integrate it into their day-to-day lives and bring it back and share it with their community. And ex- excuse me, Rabbi Cooper, for uh, um, paraphrasing that quote, but but I really appreciate that in that if, if someone uh, has a mystical experience and it serves to estrange them from their their loved ones, we have to take a very careful look at that and ask if that is helping or if that is harming. And what I can say is in the anthropological literature in the Amazon, what we see with ayahuasca is that There are many tribes. There's a a huge diversity of of ethnicities all over the Amazon. And of course, some of them quite famously have have had little to no contact with the rest of the world. And so it's very interesting for anthropologists to to learn from these, um, from our fellow human beings, uh, very, very distant relatives, but um, fellow human beings, um, that they, um, the, the tribes, who drink ayahuasca as a community have lower rates of alcoholism, lower rates of uh, absenteeism within the family, and they have more of a, a sense of a community, more cohesion. The mend tends not to go off and work in distant places and just send money home periodically as contrasted with other tribes who do not drink ayahuasca, where there is more alcoholism, more uh, of the uh, you know problems that come up within community. So I think really there is there is scientific or, or or data there is data to support this idea 
that it is a beneficial thing for these communities. And the reason that these traditions have survived as long as they are is that they are just like any other culture. They provide some advantage, some survival advantage to human beings. And of course, we are in a, you know, we, we, we as a human species uh, have some existential questions about our survival. And that's why I think it's, it's pertinent that we have this conversation now about uh, psychoactive plants and how they might help us to, um, to ensure our survival. But again, it all boils down to presence. We, we, we have these experiences not to have an experience and not to say, well, I, did, I went and I had this thing and it was like watching, you know, I went to this movie, you know, and, and it was a cool movie. Now, that's not, that's not what this is for at all. Someone might go thinking that, but they're actually going to gain much more benefit than they might have otherwise imagined by gaining the ability to, to be more present for, for the, the quotidian responsibilities of our lives. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. And I love, I love the um, presencing the concept of presence, but, and also you, you mentioned integration. And I think that the, the requirement for us to do our own work, continue doing the work and integrate whatever experience we had into our lives that makes us um, better community members it makes us, um, you know, more present in our day to day lives, whether that's with partners or family or friends or you know, anybody else, I think is the real reason why uh, we're showing up to do the work um, more self-knowledge. Self-knowledge. And, and, and also, I will mention self-love. Yeah, I think that a theme which comes up very frequently for people working with these sorts of plants is that if there is a lack of self-love, that will be highlighted. Really, the, the, these, particularly ayahuasca, is an amplifier of whatever is going on. So it, it brings up things that need to be addressed that we haven't been addressing. But it also, it also shows us our, our beautiful side so that we can better acknowledge our own authentic expression of beauty, while at the same time, um, if there is something ugly, and of course, we all have an ugly side, we all have a side of our personality that we don't like so much, and that's a place where we can focus some attention to, to work on it. But all of these things together, they all boil down to presence. And presence expresses itself in so many positive ways. It expresses itself as um, following through on responsibilities as well as uh, having compassion. And that is something which certainly uh, we will all benefit from more of in this world is compassion. Yeah. So you have worked with not only thousands of uh, participants in ceremony, but you have bumped up against a number of people who have been interested in serving medicine. And I'm curious if you have any perspective on who should not be a facilitator or a guide. Ooh, what a good question. Yes, it is, I think, particularly relevant now as this general category of things becomes more uh, 
talked about within the 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 conversation that we're having in in the world these days now i think it's different for different modalities and different um plants and substances but when i can talk specifically about ayahuasca i think it, it this extends a little bit into the realm of peyote san pedro mushrooms as well these are the traditional uh psychoactive medicines which and sacraments which have been used for many thousands of years by a lot of different cultures all over the world right so there there are certain uh anthropological literature that 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 talks about these things and and the way it works but um all of that is in alignment with what i have heard seen and witnessed within my own work in that anyone who wants to work with these things have to beware of the four traps which await the uh, the uninitiated or the reckless and those are sex money power and identity so let me tell you that that those are very interesting subjects very exciting subjects we start talking about you know sex money and power and identity but in the context of this work it has to be totally clean so let me start with sex it's not appropriate that there be sexual relations taking place between people in a leadership role and people who are coming looking for a safe space very simply put now okay maybe people meet each other in that context and they say oh what a great connection they decide to get married and start a family that's not what i'm talking about i'm talking about somebody who says oh well i'm going to play a little with this person and a little with that person and i'm in a position of power and this is typical abuse of power that cannot happen it's not appropriate so anyone who's had not had enough sex in their life <laughs> they should not be in this role they need to have sex first i think osho and people like that would agree with me have your sexual adventures so a young person who wants to have sexual adventures they're not ready to be in this role they have to have their sexual adventures first and then the power it is very important that people uh, learn about the responsibility of a power the, the power that they wield in a position of authority and so we work up to that we have little experiences throughout our life where we can be trained in the effective use of power and a lot of that has to do with working under other people and observing how they do a good job with their leadership or a bad job because we can learn from both examples positive and negative then the other is the um uh let's see the money it's very important that people are not attracted to this work i'm going to underscore this they cannot be attracted or motivated for financial reasons if they do so their discernment will fail them and they will not screen people clearly they will not see people they will just see dollar signs and it is the role of the facilitator to say no to people to say you are not going to drink this medicine tonight here's your money back you can sit with us in the circle sing a song but tomorrow you go because this is not right for you and so it's very important that people who are facilitating already be established in the world financially if somebody's coming at this as a money making venture this not the right motivation and it 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 will have bad consequences 
And then the most insidious of all, of course, uh, is the is the piece of identity where people they start thinking that oh well they're better than other people because they're in this role. I want to make it clear: the role is not the person. the 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 chair is a chair. It's like the throne for the king. The throne is there because it, the nation needs it. But the king is merely someone who serves, or the queen is someone who merely serves the people in that capacity. And and so it's not so important who's in that, that chair. It's important that the person who's in that chair is, is not going to misuse that, uh, that, re- that, that, that responsibility because we may only be talking about the, the dynamics between one per- the, the facilitator and one participant, but they should not take advantage of that for those reasons. This, you know, sex, the money piece, uh, the power or the identity. It's very important that a person who is facilitating um, not do it for egoic reasons. Um, so in other words, they must be established. They must have a, a well-established life in which they are stable and grounded and that they don't need this. They, if, if they need it, it's some other motivation. But if they don't need it, if they can take it or leave it, then they can show up in a way that's karmically clean and they'll do a good job. Now, I'm reminded of, <clears throat> well, reminded of one thing that Ram Dass uh, said, that you have to become somebody before you can become nobody. And I think that the somebodiness, <clears throat> excuse me, the somebodiness that we acquire in our life um, when we move into, or maybe when we're invited onto this path, somebody sees in us something that allows us to start giving up our somebodyness, and, and we get a move towards nobodyness, uh, in the, at least in that direction. And the other thing, when I see power, sex, money, and identity, if we want to know how this all turns out when we don't honor these four traps, I think all we have to do is look at our political system uh, and yes. see the absolute mess that we have created there. Because I think that where it once was a position of service, maybe 50, 60 years ago, if not 100 years ago, it's not that anymore. Correct. Yeah. Good example. Yes. Yes. And that's why these roles are better suited to mature people. And that is why uh, we have laws within the, the governments of every country that a leader needs to be of a certain age to be qu- uh, uh, qualified for a certain position. Um, and, and this was learned in, in antiquity, in the days of, of kings and queens. When, when power was handed over to a young person in their 20s, they were always a mess. There were no, like, for example, in the Roman Empire, there were no good young emperors. Uh, Marcus Aurelius, one of the best, he didn't get to be emperor until he was in his 40s. Because uh, Anton- Antoninus Pius lived forever. And um, by the time he, he, he took the responsibility, he was a mature individual. Um, you know, maybe Octavian is an exception. He came in uh, a little bit younger, but he was groomed. He was selected. And again, these are people who were, they weren't elected. And they didn't seize power by force. They were chosen to lead as successors. 
And I think the Roman Empire is, is a great mirror for how to do leadership. Choose a successor. Someone in a position of power says, I think this person will do a good job. That's how you get a responsible administrator. If it's a popularity contest or, 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 or someone uh, is a dictator who takes power by force, it's a mess. It's a mess. Uh, or if it's a young person, because young people need to, to goof off a little bit before they take on responsibility. So quick little speed round, three questions for you. First one, why do you do this work? First of all, it's helped me tremendously, and I really believe in sharing it with others who, for whom it's a good fit, for those who are ready, sharing it in the best way that I can. And I have uh, always been motivated, perhaps my conditioning or the way that I was raised or values within our family to take time for uh, service to humanity and also my Spiritual views are such that I believe that we uh, we benefit personally when we do things that help others. And so in addition to that, I do this work because I am asked to. And I want to make it clear that I don't promote myself. I don't advertise, proselytize. I don't have a website. We don't... Um, you know, uh, put it out on Facebook and say, oh, do this, do that, do that. We're, we're not trying to uh, make some kind of a business out of this. Everyone who comes here, and they do make a contribution that, that, that keeps this whole thing running, because of course there are expenses, and I have lifestyle expenses too. I need to eat and have a place to live. So there are expenses, but we don't run it like a business because that's not the way this was done traditionally. This is community-based. And so I know that there are places out there that operate like a business, and I do not choose to work that way because that is not the tradition. And instead, I do this because there's an authentic invitation and there's an authentic connection where each person who's coming is coming because of a recommendation. And so because of that, we never have any problems with the work that we do. It's very smooth. It's very harmonious, even with the larger gatherings, because everyone who's there is the right person and they're ready. And also I do this because I think it's very interesting. It's fascinating to me as an anthropologist and as a scientist and as a human being to see this uh, really positive thing that helps people. It, it's, it's very inspiring. It's something that has helped me to rekindle my hope for humanity. And uh, nothing wrong with that. That's totally positive. Yeah. What is the most important thing this work has taught you? Compassion. Hmm. Perfect. Compassion that we don't know enough about anyone to ever judge them. It doesn't matter if they are the greatest villain in the world or the greatest hero in the world. We don't know them enough. Instead, we should just turn the mirror back to ourselves and work on being our best possible selves. Just that simple. And the best advice you would give to someone that is new on their path. You mean someone who is um, curious about these sorts of things? Yeah. Hmm. Well, connect first with the traditions and the lineages that are established. Don't don't go order these things on the internet and 
and, and experiment with them casually. Best to connect with community. And it could be, you know, in the country where they live, but it, but the community should be connected to a lineage that is established many, many thousands of years, a history, a tradition uh, that is, that is optimal. Wonderful. Well, Max Stein, thank you so much for being a guest on the Psychedelic IQ podcast. Is there anything else that uh, you want to share before we sign off? Oh, GV, thank you very much. I, this was great for today. I, I'd love to keep talking. I have something to get on to next, but um, thank you so much for inviting me to uh, to ask me these questions. They're very interesting questions. And the more that I'm asked these questions, the more I refine my answers. And uh, I, I appreciate you very much. I, I appreciate what you're doing and I wish you well. And I want to express my good wishes to everyone out there and encourage them to please, please take your time. Please be safe. Please move slowly with these sorts of things and no need to take unnecessary risks or go for it all at once. Little by little, little by little. <laughs> poco a poco. Poco a poco. Exactamente. Uh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Uh, have a great day. Tupananchis kamak waikichai. Take care, my brother. Take care. Thanks for tuning into the Psychedelic IQ podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, it would really mean a lot if you could leave us a positive review. If you're a practitioner working with psychedelics, please subscribe to the podcast or join the free community at psychedeliciq.com. And if you're looking for deeper connections, knowledge sharing, and even peer support, please consider joining a mastermind at psychedelicmasterminds.com. Thanks, have a great day, and remember, you're perfect and you're right on time.